morning, Bethel. And also welcome to any of you that are visiting with us this morning. We're glad you're here. Our scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 46. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46, I'm going to read that and you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'd love to give you one. There's some extra Bibles out at the welcome desk out there in the lobby, um, but there's also Bibles provided in the pew in front of you, and so you can turn in that Bible to page 471 to find Psalm 46. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me in honor of God's Word as I read that psalm. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we... um, I was going to start to say we're walking through Isaiah. I think I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, As we enter into Isaiah chapters 13 and 14 this morning, um, I want you to think about a couple things here. So do you know how much the Al-Qaeda operatives spent in order to pull off, to prepare for and pull off the atrocities of 9-11? Well, approximately a half a million dollars. That's it. Less than $500,000. Do you know how much 9-11 cost the United States? Now, that's a really hard thing to actually put a number on, but some people have analyzed these things and say upwards of three-plus trillion dollars. So physical damage is in the tens of billions Economic impact, that's a hard thing to gauge, but over $100 billion. Homeland security changes, over $500 billion. War funding and related costs, 
a trillion and a half plus, and then future war and veterans care, almost a trillion dollars, 800 and some. Just the losses to New York City, okay, jobs, taxes, damage to infrastructure, cleaning, etc., almost a hundred billion dollars. Think about the Boston Marathon bombing. The cost to the city of Boston, somewhere in the range of $333 million. How much did those two brothers spend for those two pressure cooker bombs? Not much at all. Cost of Hurricane Katrina on the city of New Orleans. I'm not even going to try because it was all over the map as I tried to do some research on that one, okay? But cities, these are massive edifices to human power and ingenuity and technology and industry, and oh, how fragile they are. Now, you could object, those terrorists couldn't bring down New York City. Those bombers couldn't destroy Boston. Boston's strong. Even New Orleans has made a significant recovery. But listen, folks, history is very clear here. It's only a matter of time. Every human city, no matter how great, no matter how powerful, no matter how advanced, every single one has fallen. Everybody thought Rome was the eternal city. It would never fall. It fell. Do you know where the city originated? It's the creation of Cain, actually. So we're going to get to Isaiah 13 and 14 here in a minute, but grab that Bible and go all the way back to the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 4. After Cain had killed his brother Abel, and after God had confronted him and sent him away from his presence, look at Genesis 4, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. <laughs> There's the first recorded city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Okay? So the next city we ought to take note of in the flow of history is the one that started to take shape in the land of Shinar. Okay, you don't have to know where Shinar was, but look now at Genesis chapter 11. It's a fairly familiar story, even for people that don't know much about the Bible, the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard that expression. You know, a lot of us are familiar, but even people that aren't familiar with the Bible oftentimes have heard of this story. Genesis 11.1, 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Why would you want to do that? And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Wait a second. Didn't God say that Adam and Eve were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? 
They were, they were supposed to fill the earth. So the city is invented by the world's first murderer and made infamous by the Tower of Babel, where anti-God impulses of making a name for themselves, not making God's name great, that's what was driving them. So it's this, this kind of defiance that built Babel. So cities, at least in their beginnings, and oftentimes today as well, probably always today, cities are testaments to human glory and pride and self-sufficiency. Now, there's a lot of good things about cities, but oftentimes it's to make a name for ourselves. I mean, what are the gods of the world's great cities? What's at the center? Money? Power, sex, pleasure, human glory, and fame. Well, we're going to see this morning the future of the city of man. Okay, we're going to talk about it generally here. Um, we're going to talk about its future. There's really two cities, if you think, if you if, if you see the whole scope of what the Bible has to say, there's really two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. So we're going to see the future of the city of man this morning. And we're going to see its future by looking at what God said about it in the past and what God has done to it in the past. And then we'll see that his words and his judgment in the past are foreshadowings of what he will do again in the future track with that. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna learn about the city of man and the city of God. We're going to see the future of both of those cities by looking at, in a sense, a case study from the past, what God has done to the city of man in the past, and see that his words and his judgment in the past are foreshadowings of what he's going to do again in the future. So before we dive into Isaiah 13 and 14, let me just give a brief word of orientation um, for our study of Isaiah. We just finished chapters 1 to 12 last week. It took us about three months to go through, three months of Sundays, to walk through those 12 chapters. Those 12 chapters are the first major section in the book of Isaiah. Okay, the first five chapters show how bad the situation was, all the rebellion and idolatry that, that God was speaking into when he raised up his prophet in chapter 6. So chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah to address, as God's spokesman, all of this you know, mess that was unpacked in the first five chapters. It shows what happened to Isaiah. See, he saw the Lord in all of his holiness. Then he saw himself in all of his unholiness and sinfulness. And he said, oh no, I'm in trouble. And he humbled himself. And then the Lord atoned for his sin and cleansed him. And then the Lord used him. So what happened to Isaiah needs to happen to all of the people of God in Judah at the time because they're so rebellious. So in a sense, chapter 6 is a, a picture of what needs to happen broadly. Okay? And then in chapters 7 to 12, it kind of it unpacks the judgment that is coming for Israel because of their rebellion. But it, the Lord does it in such a way that he shows that judgment's not going to be the last word. Okay? The Lord has grace planned for his people on the far side of getting their attention. 
So even though there's lots of judgment and warning in chapter 7 to 12, there's a message of grace and hope on the far side of judgment. It's the section that centers around two prophecies of the Messiah to come. Remember chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name's going to be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And then the prophecy of chapter 11, this king, this, this root of Jesse, shoot from Jesse, is going to come and make everything new. So there's a lot of hope in those chapters. Well, that's the first big section in Isaiah. Now we're entering into the second big section in Isaiah. That's chapters 13 to 27. Okay? Those 15 chapters are actually going to take us a lot less time to work through than the first 12 chapters because for the most part, chapters 13 to 27 are filled with prophetic words of judgment against all the nations of the world at the time. And and those nations are filled with pride and defiance of God, and he's going to judge them. So this section is not without its beams of hope. They break in, and sometimes it's really beautiful how they break in, and we'll see that, okay? But it's this sobering, rapid-fire reminder of what Isaiah has already said that the Lord would do. He said it back in chapter 2. Listen, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So that's like the heading over chapters 13 to 27. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. So, that's why we begin with some thoughts on the cities of man, which really make up the city of man, if we speak generally, because they're oftentimes monuments and bastions of this lofty pride of humanity. And this passage, chapters 13 and 14, are a case study for us, and this is not just curiosity. This is, this is how God works with prideful people. And man, if we're all honest with ourselves, whoa, we are so spring-loaded spring to pride. So we need to be warned by this kind of thing. So we need to see how God dealt with Babylon, this lifted-up, lofty, arrogant, cocky, prideful city, this kingdom, so that we can make sure that we turn from our pride and humbly trust in the Lord. Okay? So there's an outline in your bulletin. You'll see the slides, I think, up on the screen here. So point number one, the city of man. So we're going to look at the city of man, which, again, the, the kind of case study is Babylon. Then we're going to look at the city of God, and then we're going to just ask some questions. Which city are we seeking? Okay? So look first at verses... 1 to 13 in chapter 13 of Isaiah. So back to Isaiah 13. And that can be found on page 576 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. And let's look at the first 13 verses here. Um, The oracle, which basically like, it's a word from the Lord, okay? Um, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. 
So this is God speaking through Isaiah. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself, God speaking, I have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. So we'll just stop here for a second. The the destruction of Babylon is prophesied here, okay? Because if, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, if you were here at the beginning, you realize this is way in advance that Isaiah is saying this. Isaiah's ministry was from around 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. You have to count backwards when you're dealing with B.C., remember? So 740 is earlier than 680, working our way up to, you know, 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. So Assyria was the world power during Isaiah's lifetime. Babylon didn't displace Assyria as the world power until 612 B.C., Isaiah is long gone. And Babylon didn't sack Jerusalem until 586 B.C. And then Medo-Persia didn't topple Babylon until 539 B.C. So you can read about all these movements of history in any history book, but what we need to see in this section is that these movements are not just political you know, with human explanations. They're the movements of God in history. He's sovereign over history. He's the Lord over the nations. That is, in a sense, the main message of these chapters, 13 to 27. The Lord is the Lord over all the nations. So listen to how it's stated in here. I myself, verse 3, have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. I'm raising up these nations to accomplish my purposes. Look at the end of verse 4. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the earth, and the Lord, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. It's sobering. But again, he's sovereignly in charge of all these movements, political, military movements of history. Wail, verse 6, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Again, it's, it's from him. He's in charge. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony. So if war is threatened, these these imperialistic kingdoms are coming to just gobble up other nations. Everybody's just melting with fear. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Look at verse 13. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Then look down at verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up... God speaking, I'm stirring up the Medes against them, against the Babylonians. I'm stirring up the Medes. So this is like God is talking about how he's overseeing all these major movements of history, nations rising and falling, 
I'm doing all this. I'm stirring up the Medes against the Babylonians who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. There wasn't much left, left when Sodom and Gomorrah had been judged. Same thing with Babylon, even though they were this mighty power. So we know all this actually took place. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. You remember when Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, was partying in Babylon? And there's that crazy wild thing that's like out of a horror movie that happened. There's this disembodied hand that's floating, writing a message on the wall. Where do we get the expression, the writing's on the wall? Daniel 5. So flip there. You've got to see this is God's in charge of history, folks. So turn to Daniel chapter 5. And you'll see how it intersects with this passage we're looking at. It's on page 742 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. So starting at verse 17. Then Daniel answered. So, so nobody knew what to do about this message on the wall. None of the magicians or, you know, wise men type guys knew how to interpret it. But they knew, that, oh, you know, there's this Daniel guy. He can interpret dreams. Why don't you call him? So he comes and, you know, the king's going to promise you'll get all this reward if you can solve my riddle here. Daniel's like, you can keep your trinkets. I could give a rip. Um, but here's what he says, verse 17. I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship. Do you remember? And greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. You can see that Babylon was a superpower. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And God did that. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. Remember, he was out eating grass like an ox, okay? Until he knew, the end of verse 21, that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, this party that's going on right now. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then look at verse 24. Then taken... Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean 
was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Do you see? We read this. (laughs) Verse 17, behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. And Babylon is going to be overthrown. Okay? So what seemed to the whole ancient Near Eastern world to be this indomitable kingdom, it was dominated and conquered by another kingdom, one that the Lord raised up against them. Because Yahweh, the Lord, is Lord over all the nations. Okay, now, when did all this happen? Look at verse 6, 9, and 13, and you see that it's the day of the Lord. It says it's the day of the Lord that all this would happen. It would happen on that day. And we talked about what that phrase means a little bit more in length in previous weeks. But the bottom line is that the day of the Lord is shorthand for the day that the Lord shows up to judge his enemies and to deliver his people. So that day, the day of the Lord, is either going to be a relief for people because they're, they're God's people and they're maybe being oppressed and they want to be set free and rescued like the Egyptians in Egypt, I'm sorry, the Israelites in Egypt, or it's a terrifying day from which there's no escape. So for the proud Babylonians, it was a day of utter destruction. But an interesting thing happens, and this is where we're going to start to come out of Palestine and bring it home to Wilmington here, okay? An interesting thing happens in the Bible with both the day of the Lord and with Babylon, those, that language. They become more than just a place and more than just a day in history, in the past. They both become paradigms in the Bible. Okay, so before you, oh, what, what in the world are you talking about? Like, is anything relevant for my life here? Before you go there, hold on a second. This happens in our world too. Things happen in our world that become proverbial. They become paradigmatic. They become stereotypical. So what's a Ponzi scheme? Ponzi, Ponzi, I don't know. Ponzi. Okay, you know what that is, right? But you know what? Charles Ponzi, you know, lived back in the early 1900s. So why did they call what Bernie Madoff did a Ponzi scheme? Because what Charles Ponzi did became a paradigm for other things, patterns that people participate in. Okay, or what's a Copernican revolution? Man, everything changes for you. It's like this, your whole world gets reoriented around some new center. Oh, well, yeah, Copernicus lived hundreds of years ago, the end of 1400s, beginning of 1500s, and he's the first one that said, hey, come on. It's the earth around the sun, not the other way around. (laughs) That's kind of a big deal, you know, reorienting things. So a Copernican revolution is when all of a sudden what you used to center your life around changes and you're centering your life around something else, okay? So, Babylon in the Bible becomes more than just a place on the map, a particular city in history. You got to track with me here, but flip to 1 Peter 5. First Peter 5. So this is first century. Peter writing to people that he was shepherding, he was leading. First Peter 5:13. It's the end of his letter. 
And he says this cryptic thing. These are the kind of closing words, you know, by Silvanus, a fellow brother, you know, I've written to you briefly. And then verse 13, she who is at Babylon, and she is not an individual person, but the church at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, greet one another with a kiss of love. <laughs> Babylon? Babylon was like totally decimated hundreds of years before. What's the deal? Well, it's because Babylon has become shorthand for something bigger. It's not just a, a point on the map. It's become a paradigm. So Babylon is shorthand for all this fallen world in its defiance of God. So here in 1 Peter, it's actually in reference to Rome. Because that's where this church was at. It was in Rome. But Rome is considered Babylon because Rome is just like Babylon. Lofty, arrogant, pompous. So here's the point. The city of man, the church, I'm sorry, <laughs> the city of God, the church, is residing in the city of man, Rome, which we could call Babylon because it's just like Babylon of old. Okay? So, this, we're almost turning the corner here, okay? <laughs> Still tracking with me. So, if you look back in Isaiah again, just so that you can see this, this paradigm played out, in Isaiah 21, you can just listen to this. Um, we'll get there and talk about the context later, but listen to Isaiah 21 9. Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Does that sound familiar? If you know the book of Revelation, in chapters 14 and 18, what happens? It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Is it talking about literally ancient Babylon? No, it's talking about Babylon, the city of man that sets itself up against God. In its pride. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking so far? So Babylon is shorthand for all the kingdoms, all the cities that set themselves up against the Lord in their pride and their God-defying defiance, okay? So that's why some people have thought that part of chapter 14 in Isaiah refers to Satan. Have you guys ever seen this? So we're still walking through Isaiah 13 and 14. Go to chapter 14 now. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, dawn, son of dawn. Okay, kings in the ancient Near East would take these exalted titles like this. So how you are fallen, again, this is speaking of Babylon. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen to how pompous they are. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne, above, throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Pretty exalted claims for a, a king. That's the way they talked. But you are brought down to Sheol, to, to the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. This isn't talking about Satan primarily. Look at verse 16. Is this the man 
who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. So the point is, Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar were these powerful leaders and just let a little time go by and they're nothing. Is this the man? He's bones in the ground. Is this the man that shook, you know, that just inspired fear in everyone? Verse 18, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch. So anyway, you're nothing. And again, the Lord is sovereign over the kingdoms. Verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, says the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm going to judge and bring down this lofty city. So it refers to Babylon, its proud rulers, but yes, their pride is a reflection of the original proud one, okay? who sought to make himself like the Most High. So, of course, pride is satanic, so you can see why people interpret it that way. But now we've kind of walked through quickly these two chapters, and so let's just ask, so what? (laughs) So what? Why, Why are we looking at all this as we walk through and study the whole book of Isaiah? Well, first off, all these oracles of judgment to the nations, how many of them do you think made it to the royal courts of these different kingdoms? None. So then why did it get penned? Why did Isaiah say it? Why did he write it down? They were spoken by Isaiah, written down for God's people as a warning against that kind of pride, against living for the city of man rather than the city of God. And they're spoken as a comfort. Imagine you are oppressed under, you know, you just, you just seem helpless under the strong hand of Rome in the first century. It's a comfort to know that Yahweh is Lord of the nations. And he's going to bring down the proud and he's going to exalt the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Be patient and wait. So it's a warning, because man, we're all spring-loaded to pride, aren't we? And it's a comfort, because they're not the king of the universe. Your destiny is not ultimately in their hands. The Lord is the king. So first, a warning. We're prone to pride. We need the warning. God opposes the proud. We need to not love this world, the city of man, with all of its God-denying, self-exalting impulses. Do you remember 1 John 2? Just listen. Do not love the world, the city of man, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, loving him, loving others, abides forever. So it's so easy to love this world, to get settled in and, and feel at home here and think that heaven and the, the kingdom of God is just so ethereal. It's just not, you can't see it. It's not real. You love this world, and then there's the boastful pride of life 
that wells up or that we go after, we seek after it. We need to hear that it's all passing away. We need to see in history that the Lord's brought down those kingdoms one after the other, no matter how powerful and enduring they seemed. But there's also a day on the calendar. This is not just history. It's not just history lessons. There's a day on the calendar, the final day of the Lord, against all human pride. So earthly cities seem so real and solid and enduring. The accomplishments and ingenuity and wealth and power of people can seem so solid and trustworthy and secure. And it's so easy to put our trust there. But we need to be reminded by by Babylon's wreckage, (laughs) the ruins of Babylon in the past, we need to be reminded that it's all passing away. And it will all be judged and brought down and shown for what it is. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's the little man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. Listen to Malcolm Muggridge, the late editor of Punch Magazine, um, British journalist who became, had some kind of conversion later on in life. So here's what he said, can this really be what life is about as the media insists, this endless soap opera going on from century to century whose old discarded sets and props litter the earth? Surely not. Was it to provide a location for so repetitive and vulgar a performance that the universe was created and man came into existence? I can't believe it. If this were all then the cynics and the suicides would be right. The most we could hope for from life is some passing amusement, some gratification of our senses, and death. But it's not all. As Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that royal crowns roll in the mud, and every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown, except to mock him, and cannot dethrone, men cannot dethrone this king. We are citizens of the city of God that man did not build and cannot destroy. So the message of Isaiah 13 and 14, as far as it is away from us, Historically, culturally, we have to really work to get back in to understand what was going on historically. The point is really simple. Don't put your trust in man. Don't trust in the city of man. Don't proudly trust in yourself or even the best that mankind can do. So, just, I mean, just test your heart. What happens when, when threats rise up, when, when stuff happens and the carpet gets pulled out from underneath you? Where do you run? Where's your first impulse? Do you start scrambling and getting on the phone, networking, just making sure? Or do you hit your knees? Is God the last resort or the first resort? Why in the world would we settle down in a condemned house as if this is our home? And you know what? Conversely, isn't it true that the city of God can seem so, like the kingdom of God, it can seem so weak and fragile and ethereal. I can't touch it. 
And you know what? The people of God are weak. (laughs) And we feel weak and fragile, and it looks like the church is weak and fragile. Like it's on the edge of defeat and disintegration. But listen, the message of Isaiah 13 and 14 in the whole of the book of Isaiah is, it will never fall. It will never fail. So, there's a little bit of this in our section here, the city of God. Look at the end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14, 1320. Again, the destruction of Babylon, it, Babylon, will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. Verse 22, its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. That's the destiny of the city of man. Look at verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Why is that all true? It's because the Lord will have compassion on his people again. He will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. Isn't that encouraging? The people of God, they were proud and the Babylonians were sent to judge them and bring down their pride to the ground. But with God, judgment is not the last word. He humbled his people in order to lift his people up. He humbled them so that they would rely on him, so they would trust in him, and not all of these so-called saviors, making alliances with these other nations to protect them. Okay, so he chose his people again, which ought to be heartening to people like us who are so spring-loaded to pride. Look at verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil, the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So yeah, you're going into exile. You're going to be in pain and turmoil, but I'm going to deliver you. And when I do, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The tables are going to be turned. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. It's because the Lord is the Lord of the nations. Verses 7 and 8, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Remember that language of of cutting down peoples like a woodcutter would cut down a forest? Okay, so so there was a small F fulfillment of this when Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persians and when King Cyrus made that decree for the Israelites to return to the land and rebuild Jerusalem. The ladies know all about that from their Nehemiah study. You can ask them for some of that history. But the ultimate fulfillment of this, we wait for. And as that day approaches, the city of God is growing. Just to encourage you, Christians, (laughs) the city of God is the fastest growing city in the universe. Like, flat out. And it's the best city in the universe. So who wouldn't want to dwell in the city of God? Remember our our scripture reading? Psalm 46. 
In the city of God, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You know, all kinds of stuff can happen politically, militarily, economically around us, but we don't have to fear because we're safe in the city of God, spiritually, in the kingdom of God. We know who's in charge, and our future's bright. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That living water that really flows from Jesus from the cross, that's what makes glad the people of God, the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The city of God is where God is. It's His habitation. So He dwells with His people. He dwells within us by His Spirit. He dwells with us as His people. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. City of man, if our hearts are locked <coughs> right here, we are secure, stable people and fearless. Anybody dealing with fears, anxiety, and feeling shaky? We need this message. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Oh, kingdom's daughter. This God, if he utters his voice, the earth can melt. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'm growing my city and nothing can stand in the way of it. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the city of God is the polar opposite of, of Babylon, the city of man. Do you know what characterizes the city of God? Well, Isaiah tells us later. He says, I'm the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, but I also dwell with the lowly and contrite of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So what characterizes Babylon, the city of man? Proud, pride. What characterizes the city of God? Humility, contrition, brokenness, need, this is the one to whom I will look, Isaiah 66, 2. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. The king of the city of God is the one who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The rulers of the kingdoms of this world, the Babylons, the city of man, are harsh masters and fickle. So, blessed are the poor in spirit when you recognize your need and stop puffing yourself up to impress everyone, trying to justify yourself, stepping on other people to get ahead. If instead you realize, I am so spiritually bankrupt, my sin before God, I can't pay this debt. Woe is me. It's the experience of Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone. Oh, no. And then the Lord provides atonement through Christ, this king, this gentle, humble king. Unless you humble yourselves and become like little children, dependent, you will not enter the kingdom. 
But when we follow our humble king in faith, that's how you become a citizen of the city of God. And that's how life goes as citizens of the city of God. That's how the kingdom advances, not by our power and ingenuity and might, but by the Spirit of God. By humble Christ-like love and self-sacrifice and meekness and humility. Loving our neighbors humbly. Even loving our enemies. You're not going to find that in the city of man. We lay down our lives in humble service and even to death for the sake of love. So when we pray, your kingdom come, do you see, like we are supposed to be part of the answers to those prayers. Following Jesus because we want to see the city of God, more people, more citizens, People need to be just flocking into this city, don't they? Isn't it great to be a citizen of the city of God? So think about this. You know how they have these studies, the most livable cities? You know what the criteria are, typically, something like this? You know where I'm going with this, okay? You need to savor this. This is good. Here's some of the criteria for the most livable cities. Safety and crime, you know, those issues. International connectivity. One people from every tribe and tongue and people nation. I'm not going to do this for each one of these, okay? So you got to connect the dots. Climate, sunshine. How about, I'm talking fulfillment. You know, yeah, we still live in Wilmington, and, you know, it's not like South Florida or something, but um, quality of architecture, Revelation 21, 22. Public transportation, Okay, environmental issues, access to nature, urban design, business conditions, proactive policy developments, and medical care. No need for medical care in the future. So you see where I'm going with this? Just listen. Listen. This is your home, folks. This is what we're seeking. We're pilgrims. We're en route to our real home. We don't want to settle down here. We want to bring as many people with us because they're all just in quicksand unless they're in the city of God on their way to the setting up of this city in Revelation 21 and 22. Listen to it. John saw this vision of the future, the city of man. I'm sorry, the city of man is, is fallen. Revelation 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And then the city of God comes down out of heaven I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Think of Psalm 46. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb 
the Lord Jesus will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So which city are you seeking? Let's not love this world. It's passing away. It's a condemned house. Don't bet your future on a lame duck. Where is your life, your hope, your security, your peace, your future, your ambition? Where's that located? What are you gunning for? Don't build on the sand of the city of man. Don't live in a card house that can so easily be blown over. Don't waste your life chasing after the wind. Instead, listen. Maybe just as we close here, listen to these texts in Hebrews 11 and 13, because this is what the life of faith looks like. And maybe just listen to them and, and pray, Lord, make this my perspective. Remember Abraham? He obeyed when he, call, he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out. He didn't even know where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, but he knew it wasn't the final promised land because he was living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do that? Because he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A little bit later, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Or Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of of the living God. This makes so clear that it's this spiritual reality that will one day become a physical final reality. The heavenly Jerusalem. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then Hebrews 13, Jesus, he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We oftentimes will be persecuted and marginalized in this life as we live in the city of man. It's okay. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So there is a solid city to come. Do we believe that? Are we seeking the city to come? Are you seeking your own glory or God's? Are you seeking your own security and comfort? Or are you seeking the eternal security and comfort of those around you? Really? Don't let that be just a cheap cliche right now that just rolls off. So we're going to close with this song, Oh Great God. Listen to, to what it says just at the beginning. It says, Oh Great God, occupy our lowly hearts. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. <laughs> 
So as we sing this song, we are basically praying the Lord's Prayer. So do you really want the Lord to answer this? I hope that you want the Lord to answer this. Your kingdom come in us. Because you are our king. We live in the city of God. We don't want to settle, settle down, settle in, as if the city of man is our home and our real place of refuge and strength and help. Your kingdom come in us so that your kingdom will come through us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your kingdom would come so that your name would be hallowed. In Jesus' name, amen.